opportunity that I've had to be at many congregations. We're really not at the same place uh, two Sundays in a row, and I've had the opportunity to meet brethren all over the place, and that's been a tremendous blessing. In this last quarter, before the summer break, we were studying in school the books of Timothy and Titus. And in those books, you have the qualifications for elders. And as you go through those qualifications, some of those things seem kind of difficult. These are hard things for a person to live up to. And while we were going through these somewhat rigid qualifications, one of my fellow students asked the question, he said, isn't there room for grace? And what he meant by this was, we're all human, we make mistakes, nobody's perfect, everybody's sinned. Can't you kind of just overlook some things in a person's life when you're choosing somebody to be an elder? And this is an excellent question for us to consider because this is the kind of reasoning that people in the world will often use. Maybe we're discussing the instrumental music in worship with somebody in a denomination and we've knocked down their argument and this is what they come back with. They said, well, you're not perfect either. I know that you make mistakes. Can't you just give us some grace and just kind of overlook this, not worry about this? What is grace? Well, we see that grace from the Bible is something that God offers us. Grace is something that we need for salvation. In Ephesians 6 and verse 8 it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. So not only here do we see that grace is something we need for salvation, it's something that we can't earn. It's something that we don't deserve on our own. Oftentimes we will define grace as unmerited favor. And I think this is a good definition. It is favor, it is preference, it is love that we do not deserve. And that's exactly what grace is. Uh, John 3.16, one of the most well-known verses says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God has unmerited favor for everybody. But there's a condition in this passage, isn't there? It says, whoever believes. There's something that we've got to do. We don't want to be in the camp of saying, as some people, especially in the denominational world are, we don't want to say everybody is going to be a recipient of the benefits of the grace of God. Because that's not what the Bible says. But we also don't want to go too far the other direction and say that God doesn't love everybody. Because God absolutely does love everybody. That's what this passage says and that's what we see through the whole uh, New Testament as well as the Old Testament. I want us to consider an illustration. I want us to imagine there's a man, he is in an uh, old beat-up car. I mean, this car's got you know, 300,000 miles on it. The front bumper's held on by tape. It's leaking oil as it goes down the road. It makes all kinds of noises that you can't figure out what, what they're coming from. And due to some fault of this man who's driving down the road, he collides with another vehicle. It's his fault. This other vehicle, it's top of the line, it's brand new, it's got no miles on it, it's expensive. Both men get out of the car, this poorer man in this beat-up car and this richer man, and they exchange information. And as they're doing this, this rich man, he's looking at his car, he's looking at the other guy's car, and he's thinking, man, you know, I have been so incredibly blessed, this accident's really not going to affect me. I'm just going to go out and buy another car. And so he goes to that other man and says, look, I know you didn't mean to do this. I, I tell you what I want you to do. 
If you tomorrow will show up at the dealership, I'm going to buy both of us a brand new car. That's grace. This man has showed favor that this other guy, he did not deserve. So the next day comes and the guy doesn't show up. This poor man, he never shows up at the dealership. So the richer man calls and he says, hey, I, I really want to help you out. I really want to do something for you. God has blessed me tremendously and I want to share that with you. But the man doesn't pick up the phone, so he leaves him a message of he, he never gets back with him. That richer man had grace. However, there was something that the poor man had to do in order to receive the benefits of that grace. And it's the exact same way with us today. God extends grace to everybody. God has favor well beyond what anybody deserves, but there are things that we have to do in order to be the benefactors of that grace. So what is our part in grace? Well, first, in order for us to see what our part is, we need to understand something about sin. While we may sin against people, while we may do things that hurt other people, all sin is ultimately against God. To consider this, I want us to think to the life of Joseph. We'll remember Joseph, uh, he was sold by his brothers into slavery. He ended up becoming the, uh, the servant of a man named Potiphar. And Joseph, was, he was a really good servant. He ended up becoming kind of the manager of all of Potiphar's house. And things were going pretty well for him until Potiphar's wife started to try to tempt him. Tried to tempt Joseph to have an affair. And Joseph resisted her. And this is what Genesis 39 and verse 9 says about that occasion. This is Joseph speaking. He says, There is no one greater in this house than I, nor has he, that is Potiphar, kept anything back from me but you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? If we were to think about this sin, I mean, the first person we may would think about is Joseph would be sinning against Potiphar, right? I mean, this is Potiphar's wife. He'd be having an affair with her. We may would think, well, Joseph, he's, he's sinning against Potiphar's wife, right? Because he's aiding her and committing adultery. But Joseph says, how can I commit this sin against God? Another example we may think of is David and his sin with Bathsheba. It started off, David lusted after Bathsheba. He had an affair with her. She became pregnant. And to cover that up, he did a number of things. He tried to, uh, he tried to give himself kind of plausible deniability, make it look like maybe it wasn't his child. He lied about it. And eventually, he killed her husband, Uriah the Hittite. He sent him off into war, had everybody retreat from him, and he murdered him. David sinned against a number of people. There's, there's no telling how many lives David affected in this sin. But in Psalm 51, when he is lamenting what he has done, this is what he says in verse 4. And he's speaking to God. He says, Against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. So with all of the people that David affected in this sin, all the people that David hurt, how is it he can say, Against you only have I sinned? We need to understand what sin is. In 1 John 3 and verse 4, it says, Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. See, no matter how many people we may hurt when we sin, what we're doing essentially is breaking God's law. We may hurt a number of people, but we are always hurting God. No matter how minor a sin may seem, we, we may think we're not hurting anybody. We're hurting God. We're breaking God's law any time we sin. All right, so what is our part 
in grace? Well, first of all, we can't extend grace beyond what God extends. I want us to think about Eli in the Old Testament. We may think of Eli initially, he was a good man, right? He was a, a prophet or a priest of God, um, but Eli's sons didn't follow after his manner of life. They weren't good men. And in 1 Samuel 2 and verse 12, it says, Now the sons of Eli were corrupt, and they did not know the Lord. And if we jump down to chapter 3 and verse 11, it says, Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I will do something in Israel at which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. And that day I will perform against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. For I have told him that I will judge his house forever at, for the iniquity which he knows, because his sons made themselves vile and did not restrain them. And therefore I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Alright, so what's going on here? Eli's sons, they were priests like he was, but they were very wicked. It says that the women that would come to the door of the temple, the women that were going there to worship God, it says that they would lay with them, that they would have affairs with them. They would cause them to sin. It says that they would take a portion of the meat that God had reserved for Himself for sacrifices. They would take that for themselves. They were very wicked. And Eli knew about this. Now, under the Old Testament law, if you knew about somebody's sin, this is the same way to a degree in the, in the New Testament, but under the Old Testament, you were supposed to be the one that was carrying out the punishment. You were supposed to be the one that did something about it. And Eli knew. Further than that, if you were related to the people in sin... You know, if, you, if there was a sin that was worthy of stoning, and these sins were, you were supposed to be the one to throw the first stone. But Eli just kind of overlooked it. Eli essentially extended grace where God did not allow. He said, I know you've done this, this thing that, that is punishable by death. I know that you've sinned. I know that you're living right, not, in a way that's not right. But I'm just going to kind of overlook it. Just going to kind of look the other way. Eli extended grace where God did not allow. What about a New Testament example? In 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 1, it says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality that is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife. And you are puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. So in this instance, you've got the congregation that's meeting in Corinth. And they've got a member of that congregation, a member of the Lord's church, that's not behaving the way that they ought to be behaving. They're, they're doing something that even the Gentiles wouldn't have done. It was, it was very sinful. But they were kind of bragging about it. They were, they were saying, look at us, look how tolerant we are. You know, we're, we're overlooking this great sin. But Paul said, you should not have been doing that. He was chastising them. He said, you should have followed the, what, was, what you were told to do in Matthew chapter 18, where you're supposed to go to somebody and let them know that what they're doing is wrong, and if they don't repent of it, eventually you've got to disfellowship that person. And that's what he's saying you should have done. You should have disfellowshiped this person. What did they do? They extended grace where God had not extended it. They said, I know you've sinned, but we're going to overlook that. You're not going to have to deal with the punishment that, we've, that, that God has said you need to. And brethren, we do not have the authority to overlook sin that God does not allow us to overlook. When we do this, oftentimes I think that we're, we're, we think that we're being gracious to somebody. We think we're being helpful to somebody. But really, that's not the case at all. 
James 5 and verse 20 says, let him, who, let him that know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. See, we help somebody out when we turn them away from their sin. When we let them know what you're doing is wrong and you need to stop that. When we overlook somebody's sin and we say, you know, I know you're living in a way that you shouldn't be living. I know you're doing things that you shouldn't be doing, but don't worry about that. I'm just going to kind of overlook that. We give them a false sense of security. You know, we may have reconciled them with us, but they're not reconciled with God. They're still at odds with God. To give grace in the case of an unqualified elder, to overlook the things in his life, maybe to overlook a a marriage that's not right with God and to say, you know what, nobody's perfect. Why don't you just stay in that marriage? That doesn't do anybody any favors. That hurts ourselves. We are sinning in allowing them to do that, but it also hurts them. It gives them a false sense of security and tells them that what they're doing is all right and that they can be reconciled with God in that state. And that's simply not the case. What is our part in grace? First of all, we cannot extend grace outside of harmony with God. But secondly, we must extend grace in harmony with God. In Matthew chapter 18, there is laid out for us kind of the the recipe for how we ought to deal with sin in the church. If you see your brother in sin first, you're supposed to go to them alone. And if they won't hear you alone, you bring two, two or three more people so that everything you say can kind of be established. You've got some witnesses to see what happens. And finally, if they don't listen to them, you take it to the church and you disfellowship them. Well, in that first portion, when it says you, you go to your brother, you and him alone, it says if, you, if he hears you, you have gained your brother. The reason that we extend, or the reason we go to these people is so that we can reconcile them. Reconcile them to God. But when they're reconciled to God, we need to, recon, we need to recognize that as well. Peter asked the question after Jesus had gone through this. He said, how many times do I have to do this? How many times do I need to forgive my brother if he sins against me? He said, you know, seven times. And I think he thought he was being pretty generous, right? And we remember what Jesus said. He said, not seven times, but 70 times seven. Why is that? It's because that's how God forgives us. We sin over and over and over, but every time we repent, every time we truly have a change of mind and we want to get away from that lifestyle, God forgives us. And we need to forgive our brethren as well. When God forgives them, we need to be a reflection of that forgiveness. And then thirdly, we can extend grace, if you want to put it this way, to in matters that aren't sinful. So, in, in matters of sin, right, that's, that's God's realm. When you're sin, you're breaking God's law. So what about things that aren't sinful? Let's say perhaps you've got a, uh, somebody who ran over your fence, right? They're backing up out of their driveway, didn't see your fence. There was a total accident. They didn't intend to do that. Well, that's a matter that wouldn't be sinful. And in matters like that, we have the opportunity, we have the ability to say, you know what, don't worry about that. I can pay for that. Don't worry about it. You don't need to worry about that. We cannot extend grace in matters of sin that God does not extend grace. We need to extend grace where God does, but in matters that aren't sinful at all, that's just an accident, we have the opportunity to extend grace. So what is God's part in grace? Well, God has the authority, right? That when In matters of sin, it is God's realm. So God has the authority to forgive anything He wants to forgive. 
Throughout the Bible, we see that God is sovereign. God is the master. God is the ruler. In fact, God's the one who created everything, right? God's the one who created us, and as such, He has rule over us. He's the one who gets to make the rules. And God also has the right to set requirements on how we access that grace. If we go back to that car illustration, imagine that richer man, imagine he said to the poor man, he said, look, I own a Ford dealership, and if you'll show up at the Ford dealership tomorrow, I'm going to buy both of us a brand new F-150. Suppose that poor man, he kind of thought, you know, I'm just really not a big fan of Fords. Grew up driving Chevys, just don't really like the direction Ford's going, and I don't like the F-150s right now, and he shows up at the Chevrolet dealership. Is he going to receive grace? Is he going to receive the benefits of that richer man's grace? Absolutely not. We understand that with matters like this, but the world doesn't seem to see that when it comes to the church. If we want to receive the benefits of God's grace, we've got to be a part of God's church, don't we? And God does set some requirements. Um, in Acts 8 and verse 37, you've got Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. It says that Philip taught the Ethiopian eunuch Jesus. And as they were going along, Philip or the Ethiopian eunuch, he asked the question, he said, What's stopping me from being baptized? There's water right there. And Philip, if you remember, he said in Acts 8 and 37, he said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. God requires us, as we read in John 3, 16, to believe in order to receive the benefits of that grace. Secondly, 2 Peter 3 and verse 9, it says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering to you, or not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God requires us as well to repent, to have a change of mind, to get away from that lifestyle that we've been a part of, and to have a change of life. Matthew 10 and verse 32, it says, Whoever confesses me before him, I will confess before my Father who is in heaven. God requires us to confess. And finally, 1 Peter 3.21, it says, There is also the antitype which now saves us, baptism. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There are some requirements in order for us to receive the grace that God has offered us. God has favor for all people, but we're not just going to receive it for existing. We bring this up, say we're having a conversation with somebody and we lay out these kind of rules, we lay out what it is that God requires for us to receive that grace. Oftentimes people will respond and say, you know, that's a really, that's a really harsh view of the Bible. You, you make everything so black and white. I don't mean to say that everything in regard to the Bible is entirely black and white. There are certainly things that we don't necessarily understand, things about the nature of heaven, things about uh, spiritual, uh, our spiritual dwelling, the spiritual state. There are things that we don't understand. But brethren, when it comes to matters of sin and salvation, things are black and white. Things are either sinful or they're not sinful. In Ephesians, or excuse me, Galatians 5, you've got two lists in that passage. You've got the works of the flesh and you've got the fruit of the Spirit. Brethren, things are, evil, are either sinful or they're not sinful. We're told on the day of judgment that there are two locations. There's a place of rest that's heaven, and there's a place of torment that's hell. And we're going to be divided like sheep and like goats. There's nothing in between. Brethren, matters of sin and salvation are black and white. Oftentimes when we say that, though, when we say something is black and white, we mean that in a negative way. We mean that as a bad thing. 
But things being black and white with Christianity is not always a bad thing. If you think back to Acts chapter 2 and the establishment of the church when the first sermon was given, what does it say about those people? It says that they were pricked in their hearts. Those people knew that they had done wrong. They knew that they had sinned. If sin was kind of this sort of nebulous thing, you know, maybe I've sinned, maybe I haven't, maybe, maybe I'm going to be convicted for this, maybe I'm not, maybe God will just kind of overlook that sin. If things were that way, how could we really be convicted? But furthermore, if sin wasn't black and white, if we didn't know whether or not we had really done something wrong or not, or whether we had really been forgiven, whether we were really convicted of that sin, how could we have any confidence of our salvation? In 1 John, we're told that we can have confidence for the day of salvation. And that's the case because things are black and white. We can know for sure that we are lost, but just as sure as we can be that we are lost, we can be positive that we are saved if we are obedient to the things that God has told us to do. Back to our question then. Is there room for grace? In the case of an elder who's maybe not qualified, in the case of a, a man or woman who is in a marriage that is not right with God, is there room for grace? Absolutely. There's room for God's grace. But in order to receive that grace, there might be something that has to be done. You may have to get out of a marriage that's not right with God. You may have to step down from a position that you're not qualified to be a part of. But brethren, there is always room for grace. No matter what sin you are involved with, if you will get out of that sin and repent and change your life, God will forgive you. There are those requirements, but God will forgive us. God will, we will be the benefactors of that grace if we will follow the pattern that's set forth in the Bible. This morning, if there is somebody that needs to contact that grace, you've looked at your own life, you've seen, there are things that I need to change. There are things that I need to fix. If you will follow the instructions that are laid out in the Bible, you can be forgiven of those things. Perhaps there's someone here that's never received the benefits of that grace. Well, we just discussed the things that you need to do in order to become a member of the Lord's church, in order to become a member of those that are going to be saved, that are going to receive the benefits on the day of judgment. Whatever your need is, whether it be for prayers to the church to do better, whether it be for uh, a study or to, uh, to receive the benefits of that grace, to be baptized and to become a member of the Lord's church, whatever your need is, we ask that you would come now as we stand and as we sing.